If you're a hardworking professional struggling to reach financial freedom, I would like to help you out as much as I can in a free 15-minute strategy call. When I started investing in real estate in 2009, there were no resources for high-paid W-2 workers like myself. I wish someone who knew what to do and had the same pedigree as me told me what to do at the starting line. As I wind down the year, as a limited-time holiday gift, I would like to connect with you to give you a free strategy session. Open to new members to the Hui Do Pipeline Club. Book here at simplepassivecashflow.com slash talk. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. This evening we wanted to have Sam Parnum, who is a lending officer. Can I close in an LLC? Can I own a, own a rental property in an LLC? The answer is yes and no, so I'm going to have to give two hats here. One is a, as a lender, one is a, an investor. Uh, as a lender, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac does not, NOT, allow to fund the loan inside an LLC, limited partnership, S-Corp, anything other than your individual name and or a trust. Uh, off the record, what I personally do, and 99% of my clientele does, and if I had a dollar every time I had this conversation, I'd have a lot of money. But uh, the fact of the matter is, typically what will happen is we'll fund the loan in your individual name. Wait about three to four months, because at that point, we're delivering the loan out into the Fannie Mae community. The people that are purchasing these loans are going to go through and do a due diligence, underwrite the loan again, wait for the dust to settle, wait for the servicer to get a couple of invoices sent out to you on your belt, then take your deed of trust and your LLC documents and send it over to either your attorney and or an escrow officer and have them retitle it. Now, of course, you don't want to pick up the phone and call the servicer and say, hey, guess what I'm doing today? Because they're going to read a script saying, yeah, we may have to call this note due. Typically, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac has a due on sale clause, which means that if you transfer the title of anything other than what's on the promissory note, the servicer has the right to call the note due. I've been doing this 20 years. Once again, I have never seen a note called due. Uh, so this, that's just uh, what I do. I'm not giving professional advice, but it is a little bit of a workaround. If people want to have the asset protection, they can still do it through the Fannie Mae and Fannie Mae loan system. I would be a lot more afraid of getting sued than worried about this supposedly uh, due on sale clause happening. 10 to 1. And I'm also a lot more worried about getting hit by the bus too. Uh, with that, can I, now people are getting a little tricky here. Can I close in a trust? And some of these guys use these land trusts. Yeah, the, the answer is yes. Uh, we can close in a, a revocable trust. I highly encourage you to upfront when we're going through the pre-approval process to send me a copy of that trust because sometimes the verbiage is the way some attorneys will draw it up. Uh, that Fannie Mae may not like the way it's drawn up, but I've seen probably less than 1% uh, of uh, trust that we get that we turn down or it's not acceptable by Fannie Mae. So yes, uh, family living trust we can do. We do not do land trust and the beneficiaries have to be human beings, not LLCs. A lot of times some of the investors out there will do it that way. Now, some of these guys, they want to pick up some uh, multiple rental properties because you know, each rental property is just a few hundred bucks, nothing to uh, quit the day job over. But what if they want to pick up, you know, three, four, five, six houses at once? How does that all kind of work? 
it's not a problem what we do typically once we get the application we'll look at like a particular property we normally plug in say 150 sales price is kind of a sweet spot for most of the providers around the country and if we can approve you for one we can approve you for 10 because they're all income properties they all have income they're talking to each other which means they're offsetting the liabilities associated to the properties in addition to you're gaining more income you know per deal so it's not a problem we do four or five six packs all the time so just following up but kind of on the last question here someone had a question just so do we just transfer the trust beneficiary to the LLC after closing that the best practice if you so choose to go that route you can uh, another way of looking at it is and this is how I personally have mine set up and uh, a lot of people you know disagree or agree I have each one of my properties set up with their own LLC but I actually have my family trust owning all the LLCs I do that not only for asset protection but I do it for probate reasons but if you want to transfer it from your trust into an LLC post-close once again, you know, we have no control over that. Segue into some of the lending requirements of, you know, how to qualify. How do we get qualified, Graham? First, you need to get to income, right? What are some funding options for folks who are self-employed or no W-2 income? Well, I mean, W income is not a must. Um, uh, self-employed is just as good as W-2. We take a look at the net-net income. Obviously, people that are self-employed, they want to do everything they can to write off as much as they can for tax limitations. Uh, but we do take the net-net number. So if you, you know, your line 31 has zero on it, chances are we're not going to be able to help you because we do do fully documented loans. Most of the investors that we work with, they have very strong income, very strong credit, very strong assets. Typically, it's not a problem. So, I mean, all I got to say is, let me take a look at your 1040 tax returns for the last two years. Let me see what kind of income is associated to it, and then we're good. Another question here, is the limit of 10 Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loans still the same? What's the, what's the maximums here? Yeah, it's still there. I keep, you know, people every now and then will call me up. Hey, I heard a rumor it's going to go up. And I've been hearing that rumor since Moby was a minnow. So it's probably not going to change. Of course, you know, back in 08, uh, both Fannie and Freddie knee jerk from 10 down to four. And then Fannie immediately followed back up to 10. And eventually Fannie or Freddie Mac kind of creeped themselves back up to 10. But that is the limit. Uh, a lot of times husbands and wives will try to maximize their, their uh, loans. Well, they'll do, you know, the husband will do 10, the wife will do 10 as long as they both qualify, they can do it that route. And if they, like if the husband does 10, they can still put the wife in title. So that's a good thing. That recently changed where it used to say, if you had own a one to four family property, and it has a, a leverage against it, it's counted against you. So that's gone away. So that's a good thing. So the husband can do 10, the wife can do 10, you know, post-close, if you were to go the LLC route, go that route. If you just want to put the spouse on the, on the title, then go that route. And if somebody has some commercial loans, non-Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, do those count against the 10 Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac? Tip, it's commercial loan is separated by properties, okay? Any one to four family loan that has leverage, that you personally are the guarantor of counts against you. As an example, if you have a, an apartment complex, 
99% of the time, the apartment lenders or the commercial lenders are going to require you to put it into an LLC and a very high percentage of the time it's non-recourse, okay? So we do not count those against you. Only the one, we had a guy the other day, he decided to put six properties into one commercial loan and thinking that he could accomplish what we're discussing now and kind of wipe it off the plate so he can still grow. Well, the problem is that the lender still had him as the guarantor of the note. On a non-recourse commercial loan, the individual's not a guarantor of the note, the LLC is. That makes sense? Got it, so it's that loan guarantor, that's the, the trigger. That's the key. In a one to four category, if they're uh, you know, a guarantor of an apartment complex, we don't count that against them because it's not a one to four family, which is considered you know, residential lending. All right. So I got another question here. And if your net worth is under $500,000 or you make less than $400,000 a year, put your earmuffs on because this does not apply to you and just confuse you even more. But um, going back to the whole W-2 income, thing say you're using conservation easements to deduct your some active income via some passive losses or some charitable donations with that conservation easement does that affect your agi to getting that loan does that take into account i'm not sure i understand about the easement part so some of these guys what they do is it's like this little trick this tricky loophole that's used by the rich where they'll go and they'll buy a conservation easement to get a big deduction off their taxes. So the question is, have you ever seen this people do it or do you not even care? Is this, you're just looking at the AGI or what, what is the lender looking at to qualify? Really it comes down to the, the 1040 tax returns, okay? Because there's several different schedules that are, for, are within the 1040 tax returns. If we see that you're making these tax deductions, as you say, which will ultimately affect your AGI, yeah, that can come back to hurt you on those deductions. Uh, but typically people with that kind of income, rarely do I see a problem, rarely. Yeah, I mean, they, they, what they're probably doing is they're probably bringing it down to $100,000, $200,000 of AGI at that point, and that's probably more than enough. Um, I guess yeah, to get specific here, it, when a when a lender looks at a profile, are they looking at the AGI or are they looking at top line revenue or? No, it's a net net. It is a net net. That will take into account all schedules. If you especially you know, Schedule E, if you write a bunch uh, write a bunch off on Schedule E, that can come back to haunt you. Uh, but yeah, once again, it's all math. And again, that's just like give it give us that tax return up front. But I mean, like this guy tonight I was talking to, uh, him and his wife are doing a, a huge exchange, about a million dollar exchange, and they want uh, they want to maximize their lending ability. So he wanted to do ten. The wife wanted to do ten. Uh, he made about two hundred thousand a year. The wife made only about fifty. Well, the primary residence payment of their house in California was close to five thousand dollars. Well, that crushed her if she was doing it by herself. Which again, it's all math. Yeah. So we'll, we'll move on to um, what so this, today's date is November 20th, 2019. And I say that because these lending terms will change from time to time. What, what is the current debt to income ratio that the lenders are looking for and the credit score? And then what are some other? And those will vary depending on the lender. Uh, when we had the Dodd-Frank released in 210, everybody said, okay, stop. We're going to stop at 45. 
other lenders said, we'll go and do exactly what the DU findings said. DU findings is the desktop underwriting engine that's used by Fannie Mae. What all lenders will do, they'll collect the data, they'll put it into their loan origination program, they upload the data into the DU engine in the sky and we get a response back immediately. And a lot of times those debt to income ratios can exceed the 45. Right now our maximum is 50. You go over 50, you know, 50.01, no, we can't do it. Right at 49 and some change, we'll do it all day. But that's what we do as a lender. A lot of lenders have their own flavor for risk and they'll say, no, we really want to stop at 45. So, uh, yeah, it just, it just depends on the lender. And you had another question. I can't remember. So what was it? How do you calculate the debt to income? Oh, it's real simple. We take whatever their gross monthly income is, take whatever their monthly debt is from the credit report, the primary residence ex, uh, expense, and we just, it's simple math. Okay. And the, there's a front end ratio and a back end ratio. The front end ratio is just count, counting the primary residence payment into the income and then the back-end ratio is counting that in addition to you know car payments student loans whatever total debt and then they come up to it with a number okay after the division it comes up with a percentage and once again 50 is typically uh, the back end for us okay so it's it's one or the other than either the front or back end dti calculation Typically, the back end is the most important. How are we uh, sitting in terms of credit score? What is the minimums that people need? And once again, that and that'll vary as well, uh, depending on the lender. I've seen lenders some lenders stop at six eighty, some don't go below seven hundred. Uh, the majority of them around six forty, six sixty. We'll go down to six twenty. Okay, that's where our threshold is. And, and where is like the best rate at? Seven forty or higher. And the way the rates work, and a lot of people don't understand this, is there's, there's four categories that make up rate. There's obviously credit score, uh, the percent of down payment, loan amount, and property type. So as an example, if you've got a 740 credit score or higher, and you're doing a single family, uh, let's just say the rates today is probably on a 20% down somewhere in the upper fours. The 25% down is going to be somewhere in the mid fours. Okay. But the, the, uh, the um, interest rates are determined by the FICO scores, and those are separated by 20 point increments 740 to 720, 720 to 700. Once you fall below 700, the adjustments really start to get aggressive. That's when you end up starting to have, let's just say, pay points that we try not to charge. So 740 is really what you really want to try and get over. Yeah. Any more than that is. You know, squeezing too much lemon juice out of the lemon. Exactly. Kind of thing. So, so if you guys haven't um, caught on to this little other website, I've been creating um, simplepassivecashflow.com slash trade lines, but I've been renting out my credit to random other people and they pay me a commission for that. But you can use something like that. You can go on as an authorized user to someone who has a really old account and you can possibly boost your credit score a little bit to get you above that. 720, 740, whatever that magical scorecard you're looking. Um, but that's um, that's something that I see a lot of other people doing, not not warranting that it works, but other people are doing it, so I thought I'd mention it. So next question here, do I need prior landlord history to apply for a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loan? It's a great question, probably, before the bus, the answer was yes. They like to see at least two years. 
And what that credit means is, what are we gonna give you back on the property as far as the income? Uh, the way it is today, we will give you 75% of what the property is being leased for, or what the average market rent analysis will be from the appraisal. Typically, they're about the same, okay? Years ago, it used to say, okay, you had to have two years land ownership or we couldn't give you credit. Now, although, come December the 7th, it's changed just a little bit like it used to be before, and this is kind of, I hope I don't lose anybody, but let's try to put it into simple math. Let's say you have a $100,000 property, and you were not, and then the way it stipulates in the new guidelines, doesn't matter about landlordship, it matters, do you have a mortgage? Have you been paying a mortgage? A lot of guys that I know that you know live in Hawaii, West Coast, they can't afford their primary residence because the, you know, the prices are ridiculous, so they're renting, okay? So it's really for these kind of individuals that, okay, we're renting, we have no mortgage history, they're coming to buy their first investment property. And well, how we address those can be December 7th, according to Fannie Mae, is that let's say you buy a $100,000 house, then you're doing a 1% rule, you're getting $1,000 rent. So we're going to give you 75%. Now we come into $750. Calculating your principal and interest tax and insurance, you're now at $650. So with the $750, or excuse me, the $750, you're $100 ahead. With having mortgage experience, we'll give you the $100. With not having mortgage experience, we will not give you the $100, but we will offset the debt. Does that make sense? All right. And going back to the last question, which FICO score are we using out of the, the three? Or is it an average? Or? We pull all three bureaus and we use the middle score, whichever the middle score is for all three. Okay, and when and these guys are out there freezing their credit, make sure you unfreeze them before you get to us. Down payment amounts. I think we okay. mentioned 20, 25%. What is your take on which to go with? It's a personal preference, but the way I, I, I look at it is there's a lot of people that are starting off and they want to grow their portfolio as, as, as quickly as possible. You're going to get a better rate with the 25%. I personally go with the 25%, but let's just say let's reference the individual you described a moment ago. Guy has a bunch of money, makes $400,000 years. There's a strong chance that he's got quite a bit of money in the, in the uh, bank that doing the 25% is not going to phase him whatsoever. But then again, there's other individuals that are, you know, they may have a hundred thousand. They want to build you know, three, four properties up really quick. They may want to spread that out to 20% down. Okay. So I highly encourage, and I ask them that question. I mean, we can get a better rate, but could you take that 5% and go get another property? Would that make more sense for you? And let them make that decision. But the, the down payment requirements right now are 20% for single families all the way up to 10. And the two to four units, duplex to fourplex, is 25% down. Okay? Right. All this other FHA stuff that's and all this VA stuff, that's all for owner-occupied properties. No, we can do um, the 15%. But we have to get the PMI on top of that. The rate there's a rate adjustment, and I can certainly send anybody a copy of my guide that kind of shows an example. It's just not worth it on paper to go 15%. Take the extra five and do 20% and avoid PMI. Yeah, and I'll chime in on that whole discussion of you know how much down payment you want to put down. Um, I sophisticated investors don't really pay attention to the interest rate too much. That's a secondary thing. 
they, they're not going to pay or sunk down an extra 5% just to pay an extra quarter. Again, it's when you put down less, you juice your return on investment. Of course, that can be dangerous, right? So you have to go into deals that cash flow so you have an adequate buffer. So like exactly. me, what I would used to do is just 20% and make sure that the deal is cash flow. That's what it's all about. Stay, stay out of that, that PMI. So I mean, we're not, we're not flipping. We're not doing, uh, you know, uh, trying to gain appreciation. We're trying to get cash flow. Um, so how does the closing process work if, you know, guys out in Hawaii or California, poor soul has nothing, can't buy anything that cash flows out there, uh, but they're buying out of state, right? I mean, is this all done online? How does the, like, walk us through the process? I mean, demystify this for us. Well, um, people that are a little nervous at first, okay? And, and quite frankly, when I jumped in and did my own uh rental property back 15 years ago, I was a little bit nervous myself. Once you stick your toe in the, in the water and get one on your belt, trust me, it's real easy after that. What we took, and everything can be done online. The only thing that cannot be done online is the closing documents, which has to require mobile notaries or mobile, you know, any type of notaries. The way it works is we gather all the information from you over the um, internet. You fill out the application online. We'll send you out a list of items that we need to validate your earnings and assets like tax returns, bank statements. Once we get us that, it takes us about a day and a half to get your credit approved. Put you back in your court lane. You, then at that point, send them out to an affiliate. Once they uh, find a property and secure a contract, the property is appraisal ready. We you know, close within 21 to 30 days. Once we're ready to close, we coordinate those efforts with the escrow title company to have a mobile notary come to the borrower's place of business, home, after hours, weekends, whatever's convenient for them. The mobile notary shows up, they sign the papers, they'll take the documents with them and overnight it back to the escrow company. The borrower's responsibility at that point is just to make sure they get the wire over to the title company for the down payment of closing costs. So really everything, you know, living in Hawaii, it's not a big deal. I closed the one, you know, a couple of months ago in Alabama. I still have to see that property. I'm super excited about a new program I'm rolling out that's going to reinvent scammy real estate education programs. So excited, like Marie Kondo cleaning stuff up excited. Announcing my new mastermind program, which consists of a closed member site with 27 packed weeks of content, plus bi-weekly group video conference calls to ask whatever. Half of the calls will be centered around granular investing tactics, and the other half will be holistic wealth building strategies that I have learned from the wealthy. That's 25 plus hours of group coaching and masterminding. And a secret Facebook group too. I know what you're thinking. Not another flipping Facebook group. Well, this one's going to be different. More intimate, exclusive, and no cheapskates or shady vendors in it. I've been coaching individual clients over the past couple years and I figured out what you guys need and a way to provide it in a cost-effective way. Learn more, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey join before the first cohort fills up and the introductory pricing goes away yeah. so, I think, like when i was starting like my biggest fear is like i'm buying a property and it's not really like i'm buying a property everybody is colluding against me to buy this like nothing a fake piece of property but you know when you're working with a lender the lender is your the biggest uh, partner in this they got 80 percent to lose so they're doing the research on they're doing the appraisal they're doing the title research um 
nice. So it's, there, there's some nice peace of mind, and which is why I don't like buying things cash or doing anything burr. I mean, I don't know why you'd like to waste your time unless your net worth is under $200,000. I want to say as an investor as well as a loan officer, leverage is your friend. Use it. Once again, I can shoot you a copy of my guide. I can show you an example of somebody pay, taking 150000 and paying cash for a property and seeing what their, their rental and that income is from that property with cash. Or they can take that 150000 spread it over five houses at 150000 throw with 20% down. Their cash flow is more than double than what they were to do doing just straight cash. So use, use your leverage. Use cash. I mean, cash is king, but still use the leverage. Yeah, so at this time, I'd like to uh, open it up for if anyone's got any basic question. We have some like really doozies put in there by people. I don't know why they're still buying single family homes. <laughs> they're doing some tricky things. But uh, first question, can I lump multiple properties into one loan? Unfortunately, no. Uh, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac does not allow that. There was uh, some blanket loans years ago before the bus. They would allow for that. Very tricky. Some people uh, uh, on a commercial basis can do that today, but their terms are not as favorable. And if you do find somebody, make sure that you have release clauses. If you uh, and bundle one uh, under one blanket loan and you want to sell one and they don't have release clauses, you're stuck. You got to sell all 10 or not. But I mean, they're very hard to find and the terms are not that great. So, so this next question is about duplexes, triplexes, or quads. I'll caveat saying like, if you make a pretty good salary and your net worth is like a half a million dollars or more, you're probably gonna go to bigger syndications. You're, you're probably gonna un unload these properties soon. That's why I advocate for those type of guys to go after single family homes because the exit strategy is just stronger. Despite, yeah, they do cash flow better on paper, but usually have like a subpar tenant at $800 rents or less. But my uh, opinions aside, Graham, um, maybe talk to us about lending on those two to four units. You can still get Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, right? Well, since you gave your opinion, I'm going to have to give you mine. Uh, you know, doing a loan for a fourplex is just as easy as doing it for a single family. It's all numbers. If there's some built-in uh, tenants there and built-in leases, it's only going to help them with their income. Uh, my theory about, and I've owned several fourplexes, and you're right, the type of tenant that you see in a fourplex versus a single family may not be quite what you're looking for, only from a stability standpoint, being very transient. Because if you think about it, you know, you've got a four unit quote building. And many times you're, you have a, a common area for, for parking and maybe a common area for a backyard, but they're generally a two, two scenario or a two, one scenario for a lot of transient people. And it's, it's almost like apartments. Okay. Um, apartments have a great deal of turnover, just like the fourplex. Now, once again, this is only my opinion, but when those things are full, they are cash cows. I mean, they really are. So it's to each his own. Right. So the down payments are a little bit different, right? When you go above one unit, single family. Yes, 25% down. So there is not like a price. Um, it's just plus 5% down payment is what they want. on those. Correct. And there is a price adjustment. Like uh, if I did a 25% down on a single family today, and let's just say it's four and a half, I can still give the four and a half to the, the duplex, but they require us to charge a point. A lot of times we can premium price offset the point by raising the rate a quarter of a percent versus not charging points. Have you sold that fourplex yet, Graham? 
Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm personally down to single families. I do have one duplex. I like duplexes. So if you think about that, you know, I got a three, two, two, you know, two car garage, you know, psych, two single families stuck together. I just have a common wall and they, and I had, you know, tenants there to save quite a while. Yeah. I mean, my argument is just like the single family homes, you can fix them up nice and sell it to a, a retail buyer who's emotional where the, the two to four units you're selling it to another cheapskate investor who watches a webinar uh, late into the evening and wants a good price. So, <laughs> um, so let's I'll, be selling, I'll be selling some property here in a couple of months. Yeah. Maybe you can sell it to somebody at the local RIA. I hear that's what they'd like to buy. <laughs> yeah. If you need, if you need a really couple of cool townhomes, I got some for you. So after somebody has exhausted their 10 Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans, um, other than having 20 properties, what is their options after that in terms of portfolio loans? Well, I'm stuck in that category now. There is life after Fannie. Um, they're generally non-recourse. Some are partial recourse, but they underwrite very much like a commercial lender. They will do it on the DCR. Uh, they'll take a look at the, the property, see what kind of income it's, it's coming out of the property. And then that's how they make the judgment of your down payment percentage. Do they like the property, so forth and so on. Typically, you'll see a range anywhere from 25 to 30% down on these properties. And oddly enough, some of these guys do not like turnkey guys, which is weird. But for the most part, they all are, are welcome, most of the turnkey providers. And there's a probably a handful of them out there that do a good job. The rates are not as favorable, just so be prepared. I mean, you know, you're not going to get in the fours on a 30-year fixed rate. You're going to be somewhere in the upper sixes, lower sevens. But they have like five-year arms that can get into the fours. So there is life after Fannie. Yeah, so what is what is like a good Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac rate? Four and a half these days for a 30-year I'd say four and three-eighths, four and a half is pretty much where we are. I mean, of course, you can get online and find all kinds of craziness going on. But that, you know, for the respectable lenders, that's pretty much where we are today with a 25% down on a single family. Yeah, so maybe add, when people are playing around with their spreadsheets, add two and a half percent for a portfolio loan. Um, add additional 5% on the down payment and still 30 year amortization. Yep. That? Yep. And some of the lenders will, will throw you back to 20 or 25, but there's a lot of good ones out there that will still do 30. And those are the ones you might want to think about an exit strategy. Me personally, you know, I'll put, I'll put them on five year arms. So I've got a five year exit strategy on those properties. That's the other question. When underwriting for a new property and you're looking at the old leases on the properties, how do you show on the lease if it's a year old, but the lease was renewed without a new lease? So it's just auto renewed from the following year. What kind of paperwork does the underwriter need to see to show that it was just a continuation of the lease? If the lease says it's auto renewed, the underwriter will look at that. Generally, most leases will not say that. Okay, so you would have to re-up the lease. The lease does have to be current. That is a hard stop. And there's a lot of that will go month to month, and that's fine. Give us a month to month agreement. All right. So we're going to go here in the top mistakes, but if you guys have any questions, uh, feel free to type it in. And especially if they're dumb questions, ask them now. Um, this is a problem I have in the mastermind and nobody says anything because everybody doesn't want to look stupid in front of other people, but don't worry. Nobody knows who you are here. <laughs> the only dumb person is finding out 
when you're on the eve of closing that you screwed something up. We'll kind of go through some of these top mistakes as selling a property with a 1031 exchange and not having it titled in their individual names. And we can talk about that. This happens quite often. Um, a lot of people won't want the asset protection like we talked about earlier, and they'll go ahead and title it into their LLC. And then they just forget all about it. They hold on to their property three or four years. Okay, it's time to sell. They put the sign in the yard, they sell it. And the next thing you know, they come to me and say, hey, I want to do an exchange. And the, the entitlement of that property was in an LLC. The way the 1031 exchange rules read, and there's a thing called like as, which means it has to go from John and Mary Smith to John and Mary Smith. John and Mary LLC to John and Mary LLC. You can't go from John and Mary LLC to John and Mary Smith because the Fannie Mae will not allow us to fund an individual name. So this guy today I was talking to, he's got a monster exchange, first thing out of my mouth. How, have you sold the property? How is it titled? And there's a good percentage of the time, I will catch the fact that it's in anything other than their name. And it's pretty simple. They'll just go to their escrow company or title company, have them retitle out of their name into their, or excuse me, out of the LLC or whatever entity that it's in and put it into their individual names. They close in their individual names. And then if they want to go through that exercise that we described earlier, they can do that, you know, post-close. So you guys can check out uh, simplepassivecashflow.com slash 1031 guide. I've got um, all the nuances of 1031. I'm not a big fan of them. Um, I write about it there. It's, it's a tool to be used in the right situation for sure. Um, uh, here's a good one you put here, Graham. Um, people quitting their job after starting uh, the loan process. You got a story on that one? Some of the smartest people do the dumbest things. They really do. I had a lady with a tech company was in East Coast, and she was moving to the West Coast to continue to work with the tech company. But she knew she was retiring. And so halfway through the process, she just up and retired. And she goes, well, you know, I got plenty of money in the bank. I'm good. Well, guess what? Right before closing, we do a verification of employment. We'll call your employer, say, is this person still there? Yes, thank you very much. We close the loan. A lot of times we call them up and say, oh, no, they left two weeks ago. You talk to the barber. Said, oh, yeah. Uh, we were, we were going to go in and retire, so it's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because you don't have the ability to repay the loan. Even though you may have millions in the bank, it's not kicking off any income. It's not showing up on your 1040 tax returns. It's not going to work. I'm thinking back on like my experience when I was picking up these properties, and it was like, it's, it's always very complicated process. Um, but, but the whole like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac doesn't just want to see, they want to see seasoning of funds. They don't want to see like money showing up out of nowhere for a non-owner occupied property. They don't want to see your mommy and daddy just putting 50 grand in your bank account. And they want an explanation for every, what is it? Like half the amount of your paycheck or something like that. Maybe you can talk about it. It, you, yeah, it's a, it's a percentage, and I believe it. It's either twenty five or fifty. I'll have to ask. I don't get involved with that too much, but yeah, I mean, I, I see that all the time. Kid graduates from college. Dad's, you know, real estate guru. Here, son, here's fifty k. Go buy your first rental property. He calls me up. Let's go. Next thing you know, we look at the bank statement. Here comes fifty grand on one of his uh, bank statements. Where to come from? Well, dad gave it to me. Sorry, can't use it. That's called a gift. G I F T. Gifts are only allowed on primary residence transactions, not on investment. 
Okay. So yes, you'd have to let those funds sit in your account for 60 days. Cause when I look at your last two months bank savings, I don't want to see that 50 grand coming in there. I want to see it sitting there for two months. But as soon as that's sitting in there, you're good to go. Well, we don't ask questions beyond that. I don't care if it's drug money. I don't care how they got it as long as it's there. And so I tell people, I don't care how you make your money. Hopefully it's legal, but then you got to put yeah. it to these deals. Like other than the down payment, you need some cash reserves for some of these. There's a new formula that Fannie Mae came out with, gosh, about a year and a half now. It used to be six months on the, on the um, uh, subject property and then six months uh, on every property thereafter. What that means six months is principal and interest tax and insurance times six. Now what it is, it's an aggregate loan amount of anything that's leveraged. As an example, you've got two properties and they're both 50, the balance on those two loans are 50,000. For the one to two properties, the, they require a 2% reserves, 2% of $100,000, $2,000. It graduates up from, uh, I think it's, uh, well, I think that's one to four, and then uh, five to six is another. I think that goes to 4%. And then I think it's seven to 10 at thereafter it's 6%. Now, the good thing about that is you can use your 401k non-liquid accounts for that. So a lot of times people do kind of freak out and go, I don't have enough reserves. Well, do you have a 401k or some kind of reserve, a retirement account? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll take that all day long. We'll give them 100% credit. Used to be only 60%. Now we're giving them 100%. Here's another one that actually came up with one of my um, clients. They borrowed, opened up new debt, and started the loan process and did not give you guys the heads up. <laughs> the way it works is at the end, we will call and do a verification employment, but we'll also do a soft pull, not a hard pull credit. When we do loans, our company will pull it once. If you want to do, like we described earlier, do four or five loans in a period of 120 days, you only get it pulled once, okay? But at the, at the before we go to close, we'll do a soft pull, which will not impact your credit score, just to make sure there's no additional liabilities. Bottom line is, your job as a borrower is to be forthright with me as possible, because the borrower and myself, we're gonna write a book. I'm gonna present this book to an underwriter. But you don't show me that chapter and all of a sudden here comes that chapter at the end with you, get, you know, getting a new car and buying a boat, whatever, completely blows your GT out of the water. That's your fault. Right. And I always say have this conversation over the phone. Try not to put it in an email in case something may not be right. Or well, like HELOCs. Differently. HELOCs are a great example with that. A lot of people want to use the equity that's built up in their properties like in Hawaii, as you say, there's a bunch of it and they'll get a HELOC on their primary residence. They want to use those funds or that equity to go buy properties. Great. You have to show me what those funds you've extracted from that HELOC, which makes your balance go up. If you've got a $50,000 balance and you want to extract another, say, $25,000, $30,000 on it, now it's $80,000. Well, just show me the statement showing what the new payment is. And typically it's interest only, so it's not going to affect you that much. But show me first. So a clarification on the cash reserves, does that include money in your equity as primary residence? Great question, it does not. And what about some like, if you got money in some private note funds or syndications? Nope, or nope. That's not, it's not a lien against the property. 
it's not a lien against a primary residence or a uh, uh, you know one to four family loan, which would show up on your credit. So no, that does not count. Or but for for cash reserves, does it count? If you know if you've got money in these other places, but are alternative assets that are, that are illiquid. If they're not in one of your accounts, probably not. That's to have your name on it. If it's a syndication, it's going to have somebody else's name on it. Right. You don't have you don't have the ability to cash it out in thirty to sixty days. I think I've, that, I've heard that rule before. I don't know if it applies, but yeah. well, if you cash it out of a syndication and it's your money it goes into your account, just show me a paper trail and we'll use those funds. It's all about you know proof. Some other mistakes are plans to go out of country on vacation, which always ha seems to happen because you guys are traveling. <laughs> living your life. Um, I've actually got a uh, tutorial on how do you get a, a notary done in Japan if everybody ever needs it. You can send me a bottle of Camus and I will send that to you right away. Um, borrower does not get pre-approved prior to signing a contract. You got a story behind that one, Graham? Can a borrower get pre-approved with no contract? Absolutely, we do it all the time. And I'm going to blow your secret. You can, if you're in Japan, do it as long as you go to the consulate or the uh, the embassy. And that's no big secret, Lane. You should know that. There's a few other tricks to it, though, like going to 7-Eleven and getting some money there and stuff like that. But, yeah, I don't want to know about that. Yeah, it's just, just make sure you guys sign your stuff here. Or what I've done in the past is you get a power of attorney with your closing attorney, and that's that's an option. Well, now let's talk about that. Um, the power of attorneys are allowed for investment properties, but they're only allowed for a relative. Your closing attorney cannot do your power of attorney. It has to be a relative. And those are Fannie Mae guys. I see. And we actually will prepare gratis for you at POA versus you having to go to an attorney or a title company that pays you know, $350 to, to prepare. We'll actually do that for you. Um, so uh, you had another borrower purchase multiple properties with you and some other folks and did not tell you. Got to be honest. Like I mentioned a minute ago, you got to be forthright on everything you're doing. I'm going to know everything about your life, regardless if you want me to or not. So uh, once again, if you, if you do purchase uh, another property at the same time you're purchasing with me, all the documents that you'll be signing does not indicate that that's what you're doing. Then in essence, you know, you're committing the effort and you don't want to do that. You don't want to get in the harm's way. Okay. Cause you want to. I will also say if you're working with a big bank that has a big bank at your corner and then they give out free coffee there, you probably don't want to be using them for these investor loans. Because number one, they don't have a clue with buying things out of state. And number two, there's, they're probably really expensive. I mean, that's how you pay for all those big institutions. So. Well, a lot of mistakes, a lot of, and I run into this all the time. I work with uh, turnkey providers all over the country, and they, do, they won't allow the big banks to come in with a contract with a you know, Bank of America pre-approval because they've had too many nightmare stories to deal with. But one of the things that has... Uh, I guess evolved since the 2008 mortgage meltdown is that there was a lot of fraud that was taking place before that, that was detected. Fannie Mae rewrote their guidelines. It basically says, if you are the seller and you're managing the property post-close, 
we don't like it. So a lot of interpretations from a lot of the lenders out there, they don't do the loan because of that. Well, if you think about it, the turnkey concept, that's all about, you know, having somebody buy the property, put a tenant in there, you know, do the rehab and managing it post-close because people like myself, I got a full-time job. I don't need to go out and manage the property. I don't need to rehab. That's the whole success of turnkey, but a lot of lenders can't interpret that way. So be very careful who you work with. So let's switch to some of these uh, questions people have typed down. Um, let's go to HELOCs, the HELOC question here. I, I have a guide on HELOC, simplepassivecashflow.com slash HELOC. Uh, and then if you're in Hawaii, arialoha.com slash HELOC, I have a little cheat sheet of where to go to get a HELOC. But if you're on the mainland, Graham, um, where does one get a HELOC other than their local bank? I mean, where, where do you get the best rates and the best prices from? It's a great question. I just um, bought a new house for my family in December. Turn around in January and put another $150,000 HELOC on it. Just to say I had it. Stay away from the big banks. Your best uh, are, like you say, are local banks or like credit unions. Because typically what it is, it's prime plus something. And I've seen uh, HELOCs go from prime plus two, which is pretty expensive. I lucked out and I got prime plus zero. So you just got to figure out what the price is on those and how easy it is to get them. Once again, the, you know, these banks to, to underwrite self-employed people to figure out that this kind of concept, it just blows their mind. So stay away from the big boys. You know, credit unions are good. Local small banks are good, especially where you bank. Do you, um, oh, and, and sorry, just clarification on that. That is on investment properties, right? No, primary residence. Primary residence. Investment properties, I don't know of anybody out there doing a good job or anybody that I would do business with because it's like prime plus five, which is ridiculous. But I've only known one, you know, one person doing that. Yeah, I know when I was in Seattle, BECU did them, but they, you need to have like 70% loan the value and at that point it's like you should just sell the property or you should get a new loan on the property and not use a HELOC because you got 30% of equity, debt equity at least in there and the tricky thing that I found with these HELOCs is these guys they always get a really conservative uh, appraisal to benefit them and try to cover them that you, you never really get as much equity out of it than you really should they're a great tool they really are I highly I recommend them all the time I Let's say I'm running short of funds for whatever reason. Some guy comes at me and says, hey, I got this great deal with this property over in Indianapolis. Can you want to buy it? I'm going, yeah, I'm just short of funds this month. Well, I'll go tap my HELOC and off I go. So, and then, and then I just turn around and pay it off in a couple months down the road. So it's a great little tool. Got to buy the daughter a new car, graduation, buy it, pay it back. That's the great thing about it. You, buy, you use it and then pay it back. All right. Do you fund short-term rental properties? Is there no. a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac program coming out for that or? No, those are private money. That's hard money because it's all long term. That's why our rates are the way they are. Short term money, that's the way the way their weights are. So they're in the you know, 10, 12, 15% rate. It's all about cost of doing business. So no, no long term financing on short term rentals. They're going to look at it like a long term. Right. I think for those of you guys who missed that, some you know for a lot of these rental properties you're gonna to have to show um, rents what what is how much is this property going to um, bring in as a condition of the loan or you know like they're gonna look at that make sure the asset kind of performs but some people they'll want to show the short-term rental income which looks amazing on paper 
Um, but that's what we're saying you can't use. Uh, what are some, so you don't meet the 50% loan to value because you didn't listen to land and you bought your house in California or Hawaii or some house that probably you shouldn't be living in. And I guess you're higher than $2 million net worth. You can do whatever you want, I guess. But if your debt to income ratio is getting too high there, what do you do? What options do you have? Well, you got to go with like the, the type of lender that I have to use now. I'm using kind of a non-recourse type, what's partial recourse, but they look at credit and they look at the property. They do not get any income docs. And that's the portfolio loan that we were talking about. Portfolio, yeah, you can call it whatever you want. Portfolio, uh, non-recourse, uh, but they're not Fannie Mae. They're not sold directly because we, we look at three categories and income is one of them. So again, for um, those who've missed that, it's you're looking at a rate that's two, two and a half percent higher than the Freddie, Freddie Fannie Freddie. For 30 year comparables, but you can get a you know, five year arms, it's gonna be a little bit more competitive. But you know, if you were buying something that was kind of fringy, it's definitely not gonna cash flow at that point. Yeah, if it's not gonna cash flow, you're not gonna you're got you're not gonna do well with those kind of products. And you're gonna come need to come in with a lot more down payment, more like thirty percent. Yeah, or more. Um, someone else said they got their HELOC from PenFed. That's a good one. Uh, I've been looking to circle back with them. I hear that they're doing, and, and he can share that with us. I think it was Prime Plus 2 maybe. And I think that's the only one out there that's doing it against um, uh, investment properties. But if I was had to pick today to get one on investment properties, it would be them. It says Prime Plus Three. But explain to the folks what is Prime, and what is that all? What does that secret ninja code mean? Prime is an index, okay, and it's ever moving. The the adder is the margin. That's where the institutions make their money, okay. In this case, you know the the PenFed is making three percent margin, so they're comfortable with the with the loan. So it makes sense for them. Because it is a higher risk loan because it's investment property. So PenFed's got prime plus three, and that's 80% loan to value on a non-owner occupied investment property, not a primary resident. Correct. Oh, let's get into the Burr stuff. They have an option to season the funds in there or do a, a cash out right away. So let's, you know, let's use the example. The guy buys like a piece of junk property for 50. They put another 50 in it and all the Burr books tell them that the property is now probably going to be worth 120 to 140 or whatever. So they want to go and get a loan for 140, pull out all their equity and say, Burr, hashtag Burr. <laughs> I can't wait to see you in December. I don't want to give you a hard time about this Burr thing. I don't do it. I don't advocate for it because I think it's just too risky. I mean, unless your net worth is under a quarter million dollars, I mean, I don't advocate for it. Let me tell you how the uh, cash out refinances work. There's a season and a non-season. Let's, let's take an example. You buy a house for say 60, you put 20 into it. All right, now you're into it for 80. You get an appraisal for a hundred. We will give you full, uh, full appraised value but we're only gonna give you 75% of that for a refinance. So 
So now you're down to 75,000. Well, I've got 80 into it. I'm going to have to pay the difference. That's true. After the first six months, in the first six months, I'm only if the appraised value came in 100, and now we're at 75,000. I can only give you what you paid for it, which is 60,000. What so, about what about if you put some? You got some contractor receipts. No. no. Here's the way. Here's the way around it. Go get a private money. Put a lien against the property. There is no seasoning for a lien. That's called a rate and term refinance. That's not cash out, which cash out has more stipulations to it. So the hard money loan through, you know, gave you a loan for uh, cost plus, in this case, 80 grand, and we have a $100,000 appraisal. We will give you a $75,000 loan. You just got to pay that $5,000 off. That's the only way to do it in six months. After six months, it's the same thing applies. So the investor needs to re needs to decide if they want to take that seventy five percent LTV or waste another half a year of their life and correct not making anything. Do they want their money now or later? That's what they have to decide. And that's where I'm like, well, if you would have just sunk your money into a cash flowing property, you could have made up been making all that money for six months. And this is all in the good scenario where this all works out, right? Right. So, but I get that uh, quite a bit. Yeah, there is a trick to that non-season. Right. Um, but anything else we think we missed that, you know, your guys, a lot of the, you know, uh, and kind of jumped a little bit all around the place. It's too long. I think maybe people, if they're looking for a loan, I would suggest listening to this again. I mean, a lot of this is very complicated when you're first starting out, but... You know, for a lot of folks, they've heard this several times and they can pick up on the nuances They can and they can pick up when things change. Like for example, the retirement, your 401k used to be worth 60%. Then when I was doing it, it was worth 80%. Now it's worth 100% for cash reserves. Like nuances like that, you start to pick up. What I encourage uh, Lane is uh, tell them how they can get in touch with me. I've been dealing with investors for 20 years now. And for some crazy reason, you guys all ask the same questions over and over. So I said, fine, I'll go ahead and put it into a guide. It's, it's a 75 page read, believe it or not, but it's a good guide. It touches on a lot of things we talked about tonight. But if you want to get a little bit more knowledge, I'll be glad to send you a copy. So it's free of charge. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, how about people either, you know, shoot me an email or if you, Graham, you want to put your email out, but either way, um, you know, shoot me an email and I'll connect you guys with Graham. You guys can get access to that and uh, read it and hopefully maybe it puts you to sleep if you're insomnia or maybe you learn something. Now I've gotten a lot of compliments off that by playing, so don't go there. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you guys are into the burr stuff and, and want to get around other people doing the same thing, um, I'm starting a little spinoff group off the mastermind. For those of you guys in the half a million dollar net worth and below, shoot me an email at Lane at Simple Passive Cash if you want to pilot that out. Um, but if you guys are uh, looking for to do more syndication stuff, uh, more passive investor stuff, general wealth building, uh, check out the uh, the main passive investor accelerator and mastermind, simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. And uh, Graham, you want to get your email out there just so people can tag sure. you? Uh, it's G is in George, P is in Paul, A is in Apple, R is in Roger, H is in Hat, A is in Apple, M is in Mike at HighlandsMortgage.com. So G Parham at HighlandsMortgage.com. 
or you can call me direct. I have a toll-free number, 855-326-6802. It brings my cell phone after hours. So if you want to, you know, you guys out there on the left coast or in Hawaii, you're welcome to call me after hours because I am 24-7. If I'm available, I'll take your call. Yeah, money never sleeps, and uh, KMIS is for closers. We'll talk to you guys next time. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself, because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.